Perhaps you have heard that ancient story, that ancient legend of the Battle of Troy, where the Greek army, having surrounded the city of Troy for many years, as the legend goes, finally knocked on the gates and brought in the horse. And after hours of darkness, inside of that horse were all these different Greek soldiers that enabled them to conquer the city of Troy. It was a plan of deception, a plan of trickery, a plan of the enemy. We've been going through the Gospel of John And we come across part of Jesus' prayer, his petition on behalf of the disciples is that he prays to the Father, not that you would take them out of the world, John 17, 15, but that you would do what? You would keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus prays protection of his own against the evil one. And, uh, and, and so we might hear that prayer of Jesus saying, okay, Jesus prays that we would be protected against the evil one, so we're good. We don't need to think about his tactics, his strategies, his temptations. We're safe, right? You'd be wrong if you thought that. Now, we are safe in the sense that the devil cannot drag a genuine believer to hell, but he can cause a tremendous amount of havoc in the believer's life. And just like in this prayer, Jesus prays in John 17, 17, that he says, sanctify them in the truth, talking about his disciples, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. You don't say, well, I'm sanctified. I don't need to grow as a Christian. Jesus prayed for me. I'm good. No, part of this prayer helps us to realize that this is the heart of Jesus. And yes, the prayers will be answered that Jesus prays, but nonetheless, we have an active part to play in the answer to those prayers. Also, in the same context, Jesus prays for his people to be one as he is one with the Father. We don't say, well, I have a conflict with another brother or sister. Yeah, Jesus prayed we're one, we're united, we're good. Again, hopefully that's not your posture that you would read the prayer of Jesus and say, yes, there is, this prayer is answered. We do have unity, but sin has come between us and we need to, as the Apostle Paul says, to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so in a similar way, Jesus prays that his believers, his own, would be protected from the evil one. But then we also see so much of the rest of Scripture that tells us to fight against the schemes of the adversary. And so I thought it might be helpful this week to just kind of pause a little bit in our study of the Gospel of John and to think through, if Jesus prays that we need protection against the evil one, what might be some of the tactics, some of the lies and deception that the evil one would use that we need to be on guard against? Now, as I mentioned last week, Probably none of us in this room is so important that the devil himself 
is the one who's bringing about the temptations in our life. But nonetheless, he has a whole host of minions doing his bidding. And just like football season is upon us, and if you've ever played football, even down to the level, the high school level, usually football players, they watch game film. They watch game film, they watch videos of the opposing team playing other games. And I'd imagine they probably do this somewhat in other sports, but certainly I know in football this is done quite a bit. Sundays, Mondays are early in the week. You're watching the game film, game film of the opposing team. Why? You're watching their plans, their strategies. How do they run the ball? What do they do? What formations do they run? What plays do they run? So that when it's game time and you're on the field and the other team is running a play, there's familiarity. Ah, when this receiver goes in motion here and this guard pulls over here, I have an idea. This play is coming. And so there's almost this intuition now as a linebacker. I'm going to run in this direction because the running back's going to be coming this way. I know their play. I know their strategy. I'm ready for it. Well, in a similar way, I want to hand you the playbook of the adversary, the evil one. It certainly is not exhaustive. But these are some of the major plays that he runs, some of the major deceptions. And that's really his great craft. In John chapter 8, in verse 44, in the context of Jesus talking to the religious leaders, he tells them point blank, you are of your father the devil, and you do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus calls the devil a liar and the father of lies. That's his, his whole playbook is all lies. It's all lies, all deceptions, trickery. He sows lies for the unbelieving world to be blinded by these lies, but also for believers to be seduced into paralysis, unfruitfulness, not being productive in the Christian life by buying into these lies. And so I want to give you four areas, four plays in Satan's playbook. And these are kind of categories of plays that he runs so that you would be equipped to honor the Lord, know what play is coming, and believe the truth rather than lies. The first category of plays is deceptions about the deity. Deceptions about God. Deceptions about God and his character. Hopefully you're able to see that from Genesis chapter 3. Early in humanity, Adam and Eve, we don't know how old they were. But all of a sudden, in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat 
from any tree of the garden. So we know from the rest of Scripture that what lies behind this serpent, this snake, and his approaching Adam and Eve is the devil himself, the evil one, the serpent of old as John in Revelation calls him. And he comes to Adam and Eve who had, had already been instructed by God in Genesis 2.17. God said to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree that is in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. And Satan's first lie that he spins out is questioning God's truthfulness. Did God really say? He wants Adam and Eve to question what God had said. To begin to think outside the box. To think independently of what God has spoken. To present God as an unreliable source. To present God as speaking lies. And this is, this is the, one of the great ironies. I think it was uh, Thomas Watson, or no, Stephen Charnock, one of the English Puritans, who says that Satan paints God with his own colors. Satan paints God with his own colors. In other words, he paints God in such a way to make God look like he's Satan. Isn't that a a strange irony? He presents God as the liar, as the deceiver, as the con man, as the one who's trying to lead people astray. But he's the one who's lying. And so he questions God's word. Indeed, has God really said? And by the way, friends, this is this tactic of Satan, this play is run all the time today. To cause people to question God's word, to doubt God's word, to think God's word, what he has spoken, is not reliable, is not true. And it often is packaged in subtle forms of various false religions and cults who often will not, again, in this subtlety of Satan, will not come straight out and say, the Bible is a lie. But they'll have very subtle ways of elevating another authority over the Bible. For instance, we see this uh, with Jehovah's Witnesses and the Watchtower Society. See, they don't come to you and say the Bible is a lie, don't believe the Bible, no. But you really need, what you really need is the Watchtower Society to enable you to understand the Bible. He is the servant of Jehovah. Or in the Latter-day Saints, the, the Mormons, right? Uh, they don't outright say the Bible is a lie, but, but, you know, what you really need is you need the Book of Mormon and the doctrines, of, of, uh, 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 doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and, and you need the, the 12 apostles out of Utah to, to tell you what the Bible really means and what God really has spoken. And, and of course, we need Joseph Smith and, and his revelations and the different books that he has given us. 
even in Roman Catholicism. It's good that we have the Bible, but, but you really need the church magisterium and the bishop of Rome, the Pope today, to tell you what the Bible really means. And so all these authorities outside the Bible wind up standing in authority over the Bible and they ultimately become the final authority. It can happen in more subtle ways in our own circles where experience is elevated as an authority over the scriptures. Our own traditions become authorities over the scriptures. Did God really say or there can be attacks upon the inerrancy of Scripture. Well, well, we, we can believe what the Bible says when it comes to matters of what you're supposed to believe and how you're supposed to live. But, you know, that business about the historicity of the Scriptures and, you know, the creation account. We don't really believe God created in six days, do we? These are subtle attacks. In the playbook, did God really say and so the remedy for that is to believe what God has said. To believe that he has spoken in his word. To believe the testimony of scripture itself. Proverbs 30, verse 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his word lest he rebuke you and you be proved a liar. Second Timothy 3, 16, 17, you know it. All scripture is given by the subtle interpretations of man. No. All scripture is given what? By inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God has spoken in his word. You ought not to believe the lie of the devil that you cannot trust it. It's the devil himself who you cannot trust. Another lie that Satan loves to spin out we see in this text itself is not only is God not truthful, you can't trust what he said, but he's not good. He's not good. And again, this is Satan is the evil one, right? That's what Jesus calls him, the evil one, a murderer from the beginning, a liar and the father of lies. And yet Satan, his, he's painting God in his own colors. He's not good. He's not for you. Well, how so? How do you see that there, Matt? Well, notice in verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, what, what the serpent is doing here, what the devil is doing, is that he's portraying God as a big meanie. He's not a good God. He's withholding something good from you. He's not for you, he's against you. And so you just need to believe me. I'm the great liberator. I'm the good one. I'm the kind one. And so I'm going to set you free if you just believe what I say. And it too is a lie. God is good. 
God is kind. God is for you. All of his commands and his prohibitions and his law, according to the Apostle Paul, is holy, just, and good. It's for your good. This is often comes up in the context of parenting, right? Where there's certain prohibitions you may have for your children, certain things you permit them to do or not to do. And often the interpretation of the child is, you're a meanie. And in your own heart, you know that you want what's best for them. That the household rules are are not for your convenience, but for the good of those underneath your authority. And often we take that posture of naive children and we believe and bite down upon the lie of Satan that God, he's not good, he's against me, he's not for me, he doesn't want me to be happy. But God is trying to protect you from poison. God is good. This seems to be similar to the same tactic of Satan later on with the Lord Jesus himself. God is not good. Jesus, or Satan says to Jesus as he shows him the kingdoms of this world. And Matthew 4, 9 says, all things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. I'm the good one. I'll give this to you if you just fall down and worship me. I'm the kind one. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to experience all that suffering. Just just bow down to me and I'll give it all to you. Questioning God's goodness. Questioning God's faithfulness as well. His truthfulness that God would give Jesus the nations as an inheritance. And then this often comes down into the lives of believers as we often, probably most often, as we encounter difficulty in this world, hardship, loss of job, death of loved ones, hard times in this fallen, broken world, we begin to wonder, does God really care for me does he really love me is he really good or maybe we're seduced by by the deceptions of this world and thinking well god god doesn't want what's good for me he doesn't want me to be happy and friend you just need to again the remedy is to believe the truth of god's word to take up the sword of the spirit which is the word of god and say no god is a good god all of his ways are good Romans 8.28 says, For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. That even if you are experiencing God's fatherly discipline, according to Hebrews chapter 12, he disciplines those whom he loves. If you ever doubt the goodness of God, just... 
Go to the cross. Go to the gospel. For he who did not spare his own son, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he gave his son, if he crushed his son on our behalf, if he gave us the best of gifts that are conceivable, namely his own son, how can we doubt him for any lesser gift? He is good, my friends. Do not be duped by the play-action pass of Satan to say that God is not good or that God is not true in all of his word and ways. Do not believe his deceptions about the deity. But secondly, do not believe his deceptions about delights. Delights, pleasure. This is, again, often his tactic We see this even in Genesis 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Food. Delightful. Did you eat a donut this morning? Good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. Aesthetically pleasing to the eyes. That it was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. We see a similar thing when Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days, and the serpent, the devil, comes to him in the desert, and he says in Matthew 4, 3 and 4, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but upon every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Again, friends, this is often Satan's tap- tactic to use pleasure as a kind of bait towards sin. It always, as John Piper says, sin always has a promise. Do this and you will be happy. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will experience pleasure. Joel Beakey in his excellent book called Fighting Satan. And he's drawing, Beakey in this book is drawing from really a Puritan tradition from uh, Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices and Gurnall's uh, Full Armor of God on Ephesians 6. And he's just taking all the, the goods and, and distilling it down into English that you can read today. So I highly recommend Beakey's Fighting Satan. But he says... Satan offers the bait of pleasure that hides the hook of sin. So Satan gave Adam and Eve a piece of fruit in exchange for paradise. The hook of sin enveloped in the fruit led to punishment and death. This is so often his tactic we see as well, even in... uh, was it First John 2, 15, around there, that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are the domain of the world, which Satan is 
the one who the world lies in the lap of, according to 1 John 5. And so this is, this is often a real thing where, where you, you have to believe the truth of God as, as the, the pleasures of sin are presented to you. You have to fight with the truth and, and, and understand even a kind of, dare I say, a theology of pleasure. That God is the one who has created pleasure. God is the one who made food to taste so delicious. God is the one who invented sex and the pleasure involved with that. God is the one who created this. And Satan tries to divorce pleasure from God. And to make God to be a meanie, when God has given pleasure to be enjoyed in its proper domain and in its proper amount, Satan divorces it from God's domain and says, here, you could have it over here. C.S. Lewis in his brilliant little book called Screwtape Letters, Lewis writes of a fictitious elder uncle Wormwood who's writing to his nephew Screwtape and giving him advice on how to deceive Christians. And he says, never forget, Screwtape advises Wormwood, never forget that we are dealing with, when we are dealing with any pleasure in a healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on enemy ground. Namely, we are on God's ground. When we're dealing with pleasure, we're dealing with God's domain. He, that is God, made the pleasure. All of our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage humans to take pleasures which our enemy, again speaking of God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which God the enemy has forbidden. Some helpful insight that Lewis gives us there. That we must connect all pleasures with God and understand in their rightful sphere, their good gifts from God to be experienced in order that God would receive the praise, honor, and glory for such pleasures. But Satan will try to divorce pleasure from God, his will, his ways, and seduce. We need to understand that's in the playbook. It's in the playbook. That he disconnects pleasure from God. And he also, dare I say, disconnects the consequences of illicit pleasure. He he divorces the consequences of illicit pleasure from the pleasure. He never comes to a person and throws out the bait of, here, let me... Take this pleasure here and your family will be ruined. You will be divorced within a year. Your children will despise you. No, he says, well, it's just a little flirting with a coworker. 
And the flirting leads to adultery, and the adultery leads to this destruction of a family and the glory of God being marred. There's a huge deception taking place that Satan is spinning out all around us when it comes to the pleasures of sex. I mean, it's most illustrative with what is called monkeypox these days. Because you're not told that 95% of people who contract monkeypox are engaging in homosexual activity. So much for public health. Or that, how about this statistic? The average lifespan of a male homosexual is 25 years less than a male heterosexual. So much for public health. Lied to, conned, deceived. This is good. This is a great way to go. A great way to live your life. But it's all lies. Proverbs 6, 26 and 27. As Solomon is warning his sons about the adulteress, he says, for on the account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You see that connection there, fire. Fire can be good and useful, right? If it's in the fire pit, if it's in the fireplace. If it's in the living room, it's not good. So when it comes to God's good gift, that is to be inside the marriage bed, when it's outside the marriage bed, it burns the house down. Also Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Proverbs 7, 19, 23, for my husband, this is the adulteress trying to seduce the, the man, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him, and at the full moon he will come home. And with her many persuasions she entices him. With her flattering lips she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. This is the remedy, believing the truth. Like an ox going to the slaughter. The one who, who, who begins to be allured into adultery is walking like an ox to his own death. And then that chapter ends with this. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Her bedroom is a mausoleum. But that's never how Satan or his demons presents the temptation. He doesn't say, here's your own grave, come into it. No. 
So we need to combat these lies of the evil one with the truth of God. We cannot be seduced by these lies, but we must anchor ourselves to the truth and combat the lies with the truth. As the Apostle Paul says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We can't, this, is, this was Adam and Eve's problem, right? Instead of saying, no, God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. Ah, Eve, let's get out of here. No. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, and she took from its fruit and ate. And her great leader of a husband was right there with her. Deception of delights. Deception about the deity. Thirdly, deceptions about developing as a Christian. You see, if, if, if the devil can't drag you to hell with him, he will try to put you on the sidelines as long as he can. He will try to make you stunted in your growth. He will try to make you unfruitful. And one of the ways he does this, again, is through deception. We see the false teaching that existed in Colossae. I think one, of the, one major way, one of the major plays in his playbook today amongst Christians is Jesus is not enough. The Bible is not enough. Prayer is not enough. The fellowship of God's people in church is not enough. You need something more. And he can sow seeds of discontentment. We see this in Colossians 2, 18 through 23. He says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you are living to this world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What Paul is saying here is that evidently there were people in Colossae who, who some of them who were, were having encounters with angels where they were worshiping angels, some of them who were having claims of these visions from God, some who had special diet plans. If you're going to be really spiritual, you have to follow this diet plan. And so there was all these, these things that were, were beyond Jesus and say, if you really want to grow and develop in the Christian life, these are the things you need. And it's similar today. I mean, just the Bible, just prayer, just the church, you need something more. If you really want to experience God, you need fill in the blank. Now, 
of course, and, and again, this is the subtlety of Satan's lies because we do and can wonderfully experience God. But it happens through the means that God has given us. Not apart from that, not outside of that. And this can stagnate a Christian. If you stop feeding a baby, it's not going to grow. If you think, well, there's something different than, you know, feed, you know feeding the baby. There's this new plan out there for mashed up insects. We'll give the baby. It's meat substitute. And so it is in so much of evangelical subculture. All you have to do is go to a used book sale. You will see the full gamut of evangelical rubbish that's been marketed and produced over the years is the next great hope for the the evangelical church. Remember the prayer of Jabez? But the psalmist says, Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commands. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Or how about Jesus' prayer? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Or the author of Hebrews Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The basic means of grace that God gives to his people, word, prayer, the fellowship, not rocket science, but utilizing those things that God gives us rather than becoming discontent and believing the lies of the adversary. Another one that stunts spiritual growth, and this is maybe a little bit closer to home, but is the, the equating growth in knowledge to growth in godliness. It's very easy <clears throat> to read about hamartiology, the doctrine of sin, than it is to kill sin in the Christian life. Oh, I can wax eloquent in all the different Hebrew nouns for sin, transgression, iniquity, but actually dealing with them was a lot more difficult. And so the easy part is growing in our knowledge. And by the way, I'm not poo-pooing knowledge that, that's a starting point, but it's not the end point of the Christian life. Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, says, the devil does not care how many sermon pills you take as long as they do not work on your consciences. Jonathan Edwards, in his <clears throat> classic sermon, True Grace Distinguished from the Devils, He unpacks James, I think it's chapter 2 and verse 20, where it says, 
you believe that God is one, you do well. The devil also does. And then he argues that Satan went to the best theological seminary in all of the universe, heaven, and knows more theology than you will ever know. And yet he's the devil. And so growing in knowledge does not equate with growing in godliness. If the devil has an enormous amount of knowledge and doesn't have one thimble of godliness. Yet it's, it's a starting point, as I said. You, you should take advantage of the reality that we have access at our fingertips. I mean, in one day, I could read a sermon from Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, and then put on my AirPods and listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of the greatest preachers that the English-speaking world has ever had. And then I could snap at my children and give my wife the cold shoulder. All in one day. Now, again, I'm not saying don't read those guys. I read them. I commend them to you. Take them in like a plant drinking water rather than a pipe. (laughs) Be a plant rather than a pipe. A pipe just kind of passes through. (laughs) The pipes are hardly moved by the water unless you have corrosive Youngstown water. (laughs) But the plant is changed. It grows, it flourishes. Drink deeply of the the knowledge of God's word and the truth of God's word and even the gifted teachers that Christ has given to his church over the millennium, but for the aim that you would be a fruitful Christian, growing in your love for Christ and the fear of the Lord. I would say another lie that Satan spins out is a kind of performance-based Christianity. Performance-based, and you know, it seems to be something of what the Galatians had run into where, where, you know, Christ saves, but then I keep myself kind of Christianity. Where, where you're always trying to be accepted by God. Based upon your performance and, and you're working for God like you're, you're, you're trying to do community service to, to appease a judge rather than out of love for a father who has adopted you into his family. And so, so the Christian life needs to be motivated by the gospel of God's grace that I'm accepted in the beloved and, and I'm loved by God and Jesus died for me and, the, and that this moves the heart to say, I want to live for him. Not out of trying to be accepted, but because I am accepted. William Parsons is helpful at this point. I read this for the young people on Wednesday. They probably, hopefully, you appreciate it a little bit more than they did. I thought I must obey the law. 
So I went to Moses to make terms with him. And he at once knocked me down. I knew I deserved it. I did not complain. I prepared myself and I went again. And boom, with a severe blow, he brought me to the ground a second time. And Moses, he got a good right hook. That was my additional comment. Parsons continues, I was amazed and then treated him, then treat, entreated him to hear me. But he drove me from Sinai and gave me no satisfaction. In my despair, I went to Calvary. There I found one who had pity on me, forgave my sins, and filled my heart with his love. I looked at him, and his healing mercy penetrated my whole being and cured the malady within. Now, I went back to Moses to tell him what happened. This time Moses smiled at me. He shook my hand. He greeted me lovingly. He's never knocked me down since. And then Parsons concludes, I go, to, I go by Calvary to Sinai where all its thunders are silent. The point there is we don't get rid of God's law, God's commands after you become a Christian. You just all of a sudden have a different relationship. You have a different relationship to Moses after you embrace the gospel. And that needs to be a regular part of the Christian life. Well, that's deception about the deity. Satan's lies about God's truth and God's goodness. His deception about de- delights as he uses pleasure outside of God's will to seduce His deceptions about developing as a Christian. Now, lastly, perhaps most importantly, his deception about destination. In Genesis 3, 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the tree, from the fruit of the trees in the garden we may eat, but from the, tree, from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. He lied. He said to the woman, nope, it's not going to happen. God's threats are empty threats. He's not going to follow through. He doesn't really judge people like that. He's not, you're not really going to die. God will just wink at your rebellion. And this is what he does. He sows these lies to the unbelieving world. God, you know, people don't really believe in hell today. I mean, we're, we're far beyond that. We're enlightened people. We have smartphones. We know better than that. 
God's not really like that. Or, or, or perhaps, well, well, you know, maybe there is, you know, some punishment for some people. I mean, really super bad, but I'm not that bad. Thomas Brooks says God first hangs out his white flag of mercy. But if this mercy is rejected, he will put up his red flag of justice and judgment. God is a God of justice. But the world is lying its head in the lap of Delilah, lulled to sleep. You're safe. God's not really going to judge, only to wake up in hell. Satan is a liar. And this is what he does. Think of all the multitudes of false religions, right? That Satan spins out to try and get people to believe in and to bank their lives upon and then to die and to realize All that they believed was a lie. And he spins out these false religions that that are are highly attuned to our own self-righteousness and pride. They, 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 They work well with believing because we feel better about ourselves and feel good about ourselves. And in virtually every religion... Under the sun, save Christianity, it's some kind of performance-based religion that God will just wink at your sins and you're good. But it's all a lie. It's a lie from the devil. When I was in high school, I think I may have mentioned this before, in gym class, you had to, the only standards for getting credit for the class, to get an A in the class, was you had to have gym clothes. And me being a little bit OCD about getting good grades, I decided I'll just never take home my gym clothes. So I would go to class, play some basketball, run around, sweat put the gym clothes right back in the locker. Midway through the semester, I mean, there you could stand them up on the table, you know, and they have interesting odors emanating from them. And so I had a solution to that. I mean, I had some uh, spray deodorant, so I would just spray deodorant all over those babies. And so the, the end of the matter was I basically had all this pungent bacteria smell emanating from my clothes with a hint of deodorant fragrance. (laughs) So often I think this is what humanity tries to do with God. All of our stench of rebellion against God and we Squirt in a little bit of good works. Yeah. This will take care of the odor. 
And we deceive ourselves because we bought into the lie of Satan as if others and God himself can't smell what's really going on. But he smells it. So friend, stop trying to squirt the cologne on. Just be honest with God. Say, God, I stink. I've rebelled against you. I've not loved you. I'm a nasty person. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And God says, okay. Let me hose you down. Jesus died on the cross to hose sinners down, to wash them clean so that they can be accepted before him. This is something, What you remember the apostle Peter? Jesus is explaining that he must go to the cross and in Matthew 16 from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and be killed and raised up on the third day Jesus is saying I'm going to the cross this is what humanity needs this is what you guys need Peter says Jesus No, 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 no. This was not part of the plan. And he rebukes Jesus. Do you remember how Jesus responded? Get behind me, Satan. For you have in your mind, you're setting, you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. It was satanic for Peter not to see the utter necessity of the cross. He also does this in the believer's life as well with, 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 you know, if, if Satan, again, he, 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 he can't take believers out of heaven, he can't keep genuine believers from going to heaven, but he can take heaven out of the believer. He can rob them of their assurance. He can steal their joy because they don't, they're believers, but they don't enjoy the peace that they have with God because they're regularly doubting, am I a genuine believer? In fact, in Revelation 12, 10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. We see as well in Zechariah, Satan is the one who's accusing Joshua. He's an accuser. He points his bony finger at the believer. You call yourself a Christian. Look at your life. Look at your sin. Look at the way you treat others. And that's where the believer has to do a little spiritual judo. Take that accusation and say, yeah, you're right. I don't live as I ought to, but I have a great Savior. 
Jesus paid the price for my sin. Again, Beaky says, yes, Satan cannot keep believers out of heaven, then he will keep heaven out of them on earth. Friend, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, press into the promise of the gospel. Grab hold of it with all your might. He's faithful. He's good. Don't believe the lies of Satan. Well, let me close with John Bunyan and his Pilgrim's Progress. He is, when, when Christian goes to Interpreter's house, who is, is the Holy Spirit, he takes Christian to different rooms to explain different things. In one of the rooms he takes him to, there's a fire. And there's a man pouring water on the fire and he's trying to put the fire out. Interpreter says, that's Beelzebub. He's trying to pour out the fires of love to Jesus. But on the other side of the wall, there's Jesus pouring oil on the fire. And then another one of the rooms, there's a castle and and all these people are afraid to approach the castle as there's these fiery darts coming from the castle but there's one who puts on the armor of God and marches forward to the castle Bunyan in giving those two rooms is highlighting two realities two tensions one John 17 15 Jesus is throwing oil on the fire. He's prayed for you to be kept from the evil one. The other is like Ephesians 6, right? Everything we've been going through this morning. You have to engage in the fight. Both of them are true. We can't take one to the exclusion of the other. May God help us both to rest and Jesus is preserving prayer, but also to use the means that he gives us to persevere and to take up the armor. Let's pray.